the Young and Healthy Podcast. You're listening to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Cincinnati Children's Young and Healthy Podcast. My name is Kate Sutter and I'm your host for today. Thank you for joining us for episode 21 of the pod. Um, And I am joined in the studio today by seasoned guests, Dr. Patty Manning and Dr. Bob Frank. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And when these two are in the studio, that usually means that we are talking about the COVID-19 pandemic and COVID vaccines. And that is absolutely the case today because it has been a big week in the story of COVID-19 vaccines. So can we start there, Dr. Frank? What's been big about this week? Well, the uh, FDA reviewed the data from Pfizer and they were um, very convinced in, that the safety and the immunogenicity, the immune response um, in the children five to 11 year old was good. And that therefore they lowered the age of the emergency use authorization to five years of, of age. So now um, the vaccine is available for uh, any child five years of age and above. And will you tell us just a little bit about what were the stages of kind of that approval sure. that have all taken place within about the last week, right? Sure. And and so, well, it's they've made a final in the last week, but it's okay. been going on for the last two years uh, almost. And that, and so that the pediatric trials were really base, built on the base of the adult trials. And that uh, we showed that the adult trials at a 30 microgram dose had a very good um, safety profile, a very good immune response, and an efficacy protection of 94%, which then allowed us to go to 16 to 17-year-olds and then to 12 to 15-year-olds. When we went below 12 years of age, we decided, you know, maybe we should recheck the dose to see, should we use a lower dose? Because kids are getting smaller as they're getting below 12. And so we did the same thing as we did when we started with the adults, is we did a 10 microgram, a 20 microgram, and a 30 microgram dose. And what we found, and really not that surprising to me, is that a 10 microgram dose in the, in the 5 to 11 year olds, so one third dose, gave the exact same immune response as a 30 microgram dose for 16 to 25 year olds. Um, the safety profile actually was a little bit better. There was a lower uh, likelihood of having fever, lower likelihood of having headaches or um, fatigue afterwards. And um, the other thing that we found is that while it wasn't geared for a, a study to look for efficacy, there was still so much COVID in five to 11 year olds in the United States that with in, enrolling only 2000 kids, about 2200 kids, we were able to show that the vaccine is 91% effective. So basically the same efficacy as in adults. That really is a remarkable week. And even more remarkable is um, the fact that there are already kids in this age range. Um, less than We're f- less than 48 hours right now um, at 4 o'clock-ish on Thursday afternoon. Um, and we've already vaccinated some kids. How did that go last night, Dr. Manning? That was a really memorable and really historic night last night uh, at our base campus in Sabin Auditorium, which is really notable because Dr. Albert Sabin uh, created the polio vaccine, and we have pictures of events from the 1960s with people getting their polio vaccine. So in the auditorium named for Dr. Sabin, we had uh, 430 
five to 11 year olds come through to get their first Pfizer vaccine. And you might hear that number and think, oh my gosh, that's a lot of kids getting vaccines. Um, but it was a, a really celebratory night and parents and kids were patient and kind and excited and tearful because they finally got to get the protection that they've been waiting for for the children this age range. I think we've all been smiling today because it, it has been, um, that rollout was successful last night and continues at our community clinics. We have one going on right about now, um, starting up at Liberty. So I, I think that as you reflect on what's happened um, this week for that age range of kids, how would you um, share with parents what you're feeling right now and what you hope they know? Well, the first thing I would share is that, uh, as you've already heard from Dr. Frank, we know this vaccine is safe and effective. We also know that we can give it to a lot of kids and they handle it really well. I think they actually handle it better than adults sometimes. They're very sturdy. Uh, they uh, were real troopers last night. And I would, I would feel so confident in telling people who are concerned or who have questions, I feel such confidence in saying, this is the right thing to do to protect your child from COVID. Uh, we know that the COVID infection can cause complications and serious illness in children, even if it's rare. Um, we want those children protected. We want you to have your children vaccinated because it protects other people in your family. And finally, we want children protected and vaccinated because it helps get us out of this pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things too, Pat, is the not only just the direct medical effect, but the, the disruption that COVID has had on the lives of children as far as it a lot of times people don't realize that there's millions of children in the United States that depend on nutrition from school. So if they're at home, they're not getting that nutrition. There's 10 to 15% of the children in the United States that do not have access to computers at home. So if they're not in school learning, they're not learning. Um, and so this vaccine really is allowing people to get back to normal to get back to the good old days of 2018 or 2019. Um, and so that we can have family gatherings again, we can have outings, we can have sports, we can have uh, weddings and gatherings and people feel comfortable to do it. And I think that in kid terms, it's the sleepovers again. And I mean, because our family has definitely gotten back to more outside time with friends and, you know, things have just kind of changed along the way, but we've still been really careful with like that extended time with other unvaccinated people. So I think that there are just a lot of things that kids have been looking forward to. You know, I mean, I think it's one of the things that's been amazing too, is that you ask the kids, the kids will tell you about how it's been disruptive and how the vaccine, you know, was made a big difference is that, and, and that's one of the things like Dr. Manning was saying, the kids were excited. They were saying, this is great. This gets me back to where I can do what I want to do. And so it, in a lot of it, it wasn't necessarily the parents bringing the kids. It was the kids they were bringing the parents mm -hmm. and that um, and saying, I want to go get vaccinated. And I think that in our population of patients here at Cincinnati Children's, we have a lot of kids who um, have underlying conditions that have made this even um, more concerning for them and their families. Did you have a chance to talk to any of those families last night? Oh, goodness, I did. Um, we had a number of families show up, scheduled and walk in with uh, children who clearly had different medical complications. And the joy and relief for those families, uh, the nervousness and the anxiety and the fear that those families have had to have over the past almost two years now 
in um, trying to keep their child safe. Uh, it was it was really amazing, and I, I, I am so excited to give that opportunity to see more kids who really have been more vulnerable um, to this vac- to this uh, virus to have to see them get the vaccine. So we did a little bit of crowdsourcing for questions for you two today um, from families on Instagram, and we received a fantastic response from them. So um, if you are both up for it, I'd like to do a little bit of rapid fire Q&A here. Is that okay? Perfect. Go for it. Love it. Okay. So what would you say if my child is afraid to get shots? I would say that it is scary to get a shot, isn't it? And uh, the good news is, is we have lots of people at Vaccine Clinic or at your pediatrician's office to help you get through that shot. And you can be brave and you can be strong and it will be so fast. And the number of kids I've seen who've gone, that was it. After a shot, I can't, I've lost count. So it is scary to get a shot for a lot of kids. I don't want to minimize that. But there are a lot of ways, a lot of techniques to get through that. Are there any concerns for kids who have allergies getting the COVID vaccine? Really no, as far as that the only thing is that there's um, a stabilizer that in there, but that's an incredibly rare um, allergy. So for all intents and purposes, no. It's not like um, if you have an allergy to eggs or you have an allergy to this or that, I, or peanuts or whatever, you know, that I shouldn't get this vaccine. Really, no. Um, there's no reason that you can't get the vaccine. There's no really medical complication or contraindication for getting the vaccine. And part of the vaccine protocol is a um, set amount of time for observation after the shot to just in the extremely rare case that there is a reaction. Is that correct? Correct. And and that's really a, a, a guideline for all vaccines that we give. I mean, honestly, is that um, we kind of uh, don't ask parents to stay for every time they get a, a pneumococcal vaccine or other routine kind of vaccines. And and because this is a, a rollout now, is that we're just being on the side of being extra cautious. We want to make sure that it's safe as possible. I wouldn't be surprised as in the very near future that that 15-minute um, time frame has decreased. Where are all the years of clinical trials and data from this vaccine? Well, there's when we started this pandemic, started in the pandemic, we were looking for anything to try to get us out. So we really used every vaccine platform that we knew that we had. Um, so that the mRNA vaccines have been around about 20 years um, and that they've been used for cancer vaccines is what they were started with. And they're still working on those, um, but that was available. And then the adenoviral vector vaccine actually were developed for this reason for pandemics and they worked really well for Ebola. So we pulled those in and then we pulled in uh, the type that we normally use is the protein kind of based vaccines. And the hope was we would get one vaccine they would give us at least 50% efficacy, so at least protect against half of the cases. We actually have five vaccines that have all exceeded 80%, and most of them have exceeded 90%. So the the response the the effect we've had with these vaccines, the response we've had has been so far above what we were hoped. It's just phenomenal. And what I heard you say is there's decades of vaccine yes. research that went into developing each of and those five vaccines. That's correct. And the other thing, too, is that the none of the uh, corners were cut either. And, and people say, well, how can you get this vaccine in a year? And one of the things is that um, by having the federal government provide funding, 
that really helped um, because you could just continue with this, the study because you had the money to go to the next um, stage. The other thing is that the FDA was getting the data in real time. The Food and Drug Administration is getting the data in real time. Usually when I do a, a clinical trial of vaccine, you have years of the data and then everything is given to the FDA at once. So now you're given reams of paper and have to start from ground zero. Well, they didn't have to do that with the COVID vaccine because they were getting the vaccine data all the time. Um, but it, but nothing was, no corners were cut. Every safety measure was done that we would have done with any other vaccine. And what's the latest count on the number of COVID vaccines that have been administered to people or the number of... So yeah, in the United in States, it's it's hundreds of millions of doses. And if you count the world, I'm sure it's billions of doses at this point. Okay. Um, that's a lot. That's, that's a lot. lot of data. And will you please remind us how many um, participants we had enrolled in the trials right here at Cincinnati Children's? Um, so I was just looking at that this morning, actually. And so um, in if you count all the trials, so between the mRNA vaccine and the adenoviral vector vaccine of the adults, the adolescents, the children, uh, 1,600. That's a lot of participants. That's a lot of participants. And that's, I mean, to me, that's it. Uh, a real tremendous testimonial for the support that the community has given to Cincinnati Children's Hospital. And, and really, the support from the community is what's allowed the vaccine to be tested as quickly as it has. We'll give another shout out to Cincinnati. Thank you, Cincinnati community, for being amazing. Um, one question we got is about, um, there are people who are saying that their kids have natural immunity and don't need the vaccine. So we've heard this question a lot uh, from lots of folks, isn't it better to have natural immunity? And uh, the response that I've had has been, it's, uh, it is risky to have natural immunity. It's risky to assume that your child will get COVID and that it will be mild or insignificant. We still have children in the hospital with COVID today. We have had a steady stream of children hospitalized with COVID. We're well over 500 children that have been hospitalized just at Cincinnati Children's. Uh, since the beginning of the pandemic. And some of those children have been in the intensive care unit. Uh, they have been sick enough to be in the ICU on ventilators with high levels of support. Uh, and we can't really predict who will get sick. We, we know that certain comorbid conditions place children at higher risk, but some of those conditions are pretty common, things like asthma or obesity. Um, those have been some of our sickest patients with COVID. And so I, I just think of it as an unnecessary gamble mm -hmm. to go to natural immunity. And I, I'm sure Dr. Frank can speak to the, to the robustness of the immunity of, the, of a natural infection versus um, the vaccine. But my point is that it's risky. It's just an unnecessary risk to take. Yeah, I, mean, I think to follow up on that a little bit is that, you know, even if you say that 99.9% .9 of the kids recover, that's 0.1% that don't. And, if, and that's 75 million children in the United States. That translates to 75,000 children that would die from COVID. So far, we've had 550 kids in the United States that have died from COVID. We've had 22,000 children that have been hospitalized. And that's with about 7% of the children in the United States being infected. So if you multiply those numbers by 14, you get to that 75,000 that would die. And, and as Dr. Manning was saying, if I had a test to be able to say, I'm going to get some blood from you and say, you're the one that's at high risk. Well, yeah, that's the one I would immunize and you have no risk at all. Okay, fine. I'm not going to immunize it, but I don't have that. 
And that's why we need to immunize everyone because I don't know who's the one that's going to have the severe infection. I don't want anyone to have the severe infection. The other thing we're seeing too, and we talk about, uh, you know, the long-term risk or people ask about the long-term risk of vaccines uh, and how we don't know. What we do know is that COVID infection has long-term side effects. We are seeing more and more children and adults with lingering effects of even mild COVID infections. And so, you know, preventing even the mildest COVID infection is beneficial to a child because we don't know who's going to show long-term symptoms, whether that's fatigue or heart issues or cognitive issues. All of those things have been reported in children. We continue to get the question about, could the vaccine affect my child's fertility in the future? This is one of those that's been around since we started vaccinating adults. So the very short and direct answer is no. There's absolutely no evidence uh, to that claim. Uh, I, I find this question difficult to respond to, and I think it's lingered because um, the, the basis for the suggestion that there's a fertility impact is, has no scientific basis. Um, but when somebody is told just something that sounds sort of scientific and we just respond with, no, that's not true, it's not always very satisfying to people as an answer. And yet that's the answer. There's simply no evidence, no support. There's, there was nothing found during the clinical trials. The, you know, the science that was used to make that argument is, is flawed and incorrect, but uh, the short answer is no. You know, I mean, I think that an extension on the argument about fertility is that I've heard recently is that, um, well, the vaccine causes irregularities in teenage girls' periods and their menstrual cycles. And the thing is, is that what you have to look at is what percentage of girls have periodic abnormalities in their menstrual cycle anyway. And so if that's very high, which it is, um, then it's going to be associated with anything. Um, and so that it's of course, it's true that by getting a COVID vaccine, it's going to be associated with having the menstrual irregularities. It doesn't cause it, though. And so, and that's the different thing is you have to look and say, what causes something? So as an example, if I go into a room and it's too cold and I turn up the thermostat, by me turning up the thermostat, I'm causing the room to get warmer. But if I go and eat breakfast and the sun comes up, well, okay, I ate breakfast and the sun came up, but that didn't, my eating breakfast didn't make that sun come up. It was gonna come up anyway. But as humans, we want to find a reason. It, we hate not having a reason for something, so we're always gonna look for what's that reason, what caused it, because we can't accept that sometimes things just happen. Um, and, that, and I, so I think that's part of things, too. We have no evidence that it's associated with infertility. We have no evidence associated with changing your menstrual cycle. We have no evidence that it changes your DNA. Um, but as Dr. Manning was saying, when we just say there's no evidence on that, um, people say, well, then prove it. <laughs> well, and I, I do want to, we have something in here about the DNA as well. So I think that DNA and RNA, they're one letter different. And I suspect that might be part of where this um, particular um, confusion or rumor has come up. Can you give us the least, like the most layman's terms difference between DNA and RNA, please? Well, I'm not sure I can give you a layman term between DNA and RNA, but how about this? As far as, look at the DNA like your blueprint for your house. 
mm-hmm. is that it tells you how you're going to build your house. That's what your DNA does. It stores your mater- your memory of how you're going to build your house, how you're going to build a car. It's, it's the blueprint. And then the RNA is actually carrying it out. And so that you take that blueprint and you say, okay, now this is how you want to make it. And it's the, so the RNA is kind of like the template as far as say, we're going to go make it with that. And then what happens, so the DNA is permanent. That stays in our cells forever. But the RNA is temporary. It, it's, the DNA makes the RNA. The RNA goes, is the soldier goes out and does what it's supposed to do. And then it's done. And our body has chemicals called enzymes that clip up the RNA because we don't want it in our cells. We use RNA ourselves all the time. So that with the vaccine, it's the same thing, is that when we initially had RNA vaccines, and as you mentioned, these have been tested for now 20 years or so, we tried to use just regular RNA, nothing around it, and we couldn't use it because our own chemicals clipped it up, degraded it before it ever made it into our cells. And that's why you had to use this fat around the RNA to even be able to get it into our cells. And so that uh, the, what happens with the RNA with the vaccine is the same thing that happens with the RNA in our own cells, is that after it's done its job, which is to make the spike protein, it gets cut up. So it doesn't exist after two days. It's gone. That's the best explanation I've heard yet. Thank you for that, Dr. Frank. Um, Next question. Will immunocompromised kiddos need three doses the way that we've gone to three doses for immunocompromised adults? It's a great question, uh, and you are right to recognize that's how we've proceeded with adults, um, but we actually don't know the answer to that question yet. I think that's what we're going to watch and understand. We need to see what the immune response is in that group of children, just like we did in adults, and uh, the good news is we've learned a lot about uh, the type of immune response that children have through the studies that have been done. Uh, and the process through which a booster was determined, I'm sure, will be applied to kids as well. But that, currently, that's not um, been determined. And so one of our uh, colleagues, Dr. Laura Danzinger, is actually in the process. She's leading a, a study um, throughout the country for uh, testing just that as far as so we are in the process of enrolling children that have uh, different issues with their immune system. So if people would be interested in enrolling, uh, let us know. We'd be happy to talk with you. But we're doing that study just for that reason to try to find out if you do need more than two doses. And we did have a couple of other questions related to the trials um, and um, the trials for kids under five and whether or not that is research that's happening now. It is research that's happening now, is that uh, both Pfizer and Moderna are testing vaccine down to six months of age. And so that um, what uh, we were asked to do by the NIH uh, about a year ago now is that uh, a group of infection, pediatric infectious doctors in the country got together and made template kind of say, this is what we think um, you should do for uh, vaccine trials in younger kids. So that uh, I was asked to be one of the uh, people, Dr. Spearman, our division director is another. And that, uh, so we really came up with having three groups from the five to 11. So we said school age kids, two to five, so preschool, and then six months to, to two years of age. And the reason we stopped at six months of age is because a lot of vaccines just don't work um, below six months of age or our immune system just won't respond yet. Um, but that's why we did those three categories. And so the, the five years to 11 years of age has been completed. We're now at the two to five year and then moving down to the six months to two years age. And how long were the five to 11 age group? Um, how long was that study period? 
Um, so the enrollment was quick as far as that. What happened is that you know, a lot of people said, well, do you think you'll be able to find anybody who's going to be interested? When we made an, an announcement that we had a clinical trial available, we had 3,000 parents in the first week that actually uh, called us if they wanted to have their kids in the study. Um, so throughout the country, the study was enrolled in less than a month. Um, and then what happened is that we followed them and we were looking for their safety and that uh, so that the FDA required that at least 50% of the children in the study had at least a two-month safety period before the data was submitted to the FDA for review. Um, so it was, it was quickly enrolled, but that was because of the high interest of parents in the country. How long after having COVID can kids get the vaccine? So uh, actually, it really depends on the kid and their symptoms. There's no reason to delay. We want you to feel well when you get a vaccine. So if you're feeling well, you can get your vaccine. Some people like to wait a week or, you know, um, and uh, certainly if you're not well, and if you were a child who was unfortunately more, more ill or hospitalized, we would want you to wait until you recovered. Um, but there's no reason to delay, actually. Just, you just need to feel well. And if there are families who have kids who are actually quarantined right now, um, is there any like guidance? I, I guess quarantine, they should be staying home, right? And not getting a vaccine, but and any thoughts on parents who might be in that situation where they're like, I really just want this vaccine in my kid? I think what Dr. Manning was saying as far as that for the vaccination, it would be, it would be like with any other vaccine, I wouldn't want you to bring your child in if they're feeling lousy. I mean, you know, let them recover from the virus. And, but after that, there's really um, no specific time. But is it maybe a, a, a little bit of a side of the question you're asking there is that um, luckily that the Delta variant looks like has come and gone through so that our cases have gone down a lot. Um, that doesn't mean they can't come back and if we have a, an unvaccinated population, but we're at a lower point now. And so that a lot of schools have are looking at alternatives as far as being able to uh, mask and stay, um, as far as I think what the Ohio Department of Health calling it and Governor DeWine as far as that if you were exposed in school and you're um, asymptomatic that, and you agree to wear a mask, that you can stay in school rather than um, be quarantined. So that um, we are, and this is part of the things too, as far as that as we're learning more, we're making recommendations that are different. And a lot of people say, well, this is very confusing. Well, that's because two years ago, we didn't know this virus existed. Um, and so we are learning a lot. And as we learn, to me, that's the smart thing to do is as you learn, you change what you're saying is because if something you're saying is not right, if I continue to say something is not right, that's not very smart. Um, the thing that's smart is to say I've collected more data and you know what? I was wrong before. Now we can do it this way. And just admit that we have new information and that's why we're making uh, new recommendations or that situations have changed. Like I said, a month ago is very different from now as far as the number of cases we were having. I mean, I think it was probably a month or two ago when you and I were here, and it kind of felt like the world was on fire again. Um, and so that uh, at that time, we wouldn't have made that recommendation of the, of the stay and uh, mask and stay. I have a question. So there are several of them about side effects, and I think that we, we kind of touched on it a little bit, but... Um, Parents are asking about long-term side effects of the vaccine. So there are no long-term side effects from the vaccine. As you've already heard Dr. Frank say, that RNA is, is chewed up or cut up or metabolized and, and done. It uh, doesn't stick around like uh, forever or, or even longer than a short period of time. So 
There are no long-term side effects from the vaccine. But there are long-term side effects of COVID. There are, there are known and well-documented long-term side effects from COVID. So, the, so that question about long-term side effects from the vaccine always, you know, um, gives me pause because it's one of the few things that I think we have learned about COVID, uh, a newer virus, and uh, something that we know about many vaccines and that Dr. Frank taught me. You know, vaccine reactions happen, if they're going to happen, they're, they're quick, they're immediate, they're within the first few days or weeks, and then they're done. Then they don't happen after that. We have learned from COVID at almost two years now that people who had COVID early on and were fortunate enough to survive have had lingering symptoms. We've heard about taste and smell differences for months uh, and months. We've heard about fatigue, heart palpitations, uh, cognitive issues. We know that those side effects of COVID itself exist. Yeah, I think one of the things too is, Kate, as far as that, uh, one of the other things that we do is we continue to collect safety data. And so the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, um, collects safety data on a regular basis. And that, and also the safety data or the, the long-term effects of the virus. And that so myocarditis or swelling of the heart muscle is a very, very rare side effect that looks like may be caused by the vaccine. And rare being four or five cases per 100,000. But if you look at the virus itself, the virus has six to seven times higher likelihood of causing myocarditis than the vaccine. So that, again, if you're going back to what you say about, well, shouldn't we just let the kids get natural immunity? You're now increasing the risk of the kids getting myocarditis. And, that, and so that um, none of these things are more common in the vaccine. They're all more common with the virus. I have a whole set of questions about availability of vaccine here um, in Cincinnati and at Cincinnati Children's. So um, I think maybe instead of asking all the questions, can we just run down details of how we want families to be thinking about um, finding vaccine for their kids? It's a great question because we want it, we want it to be easy. So, um, but unfortunately, in the very first few days of vaccine rollout, it seems like it's it gets uh, there's a lot of interest and demand, and and uh, so sometimes it feels like there's not going to be enough. But the first answer to your question is there's plenty of vaccine. The state has ordered plenty of this pediatric. Uh, dosing of vaccine. Uh, we were able to order some in advance of the approval, uh, as were many primary care offices. So you have a lot of options in this region to get vaccinated. Our clinics, uh, are, we know that some of you have tried to schedule. We know that our appointments are full. We know that we're going to add some appointments. And we also know that people have made multiple appointments and they're canceling them as they get vaccinated. So we've got clinics at our base Liberty and Green Township uh, campuses. Our base uh, clinics are on Wednesday and Saturday. Uh, we are taking walk-ins to those clinics, but we are limiting the hours of walk-in time just so that we can not have so much volume build up and people don't wait for hours and hours. Our Liberty uh, Campus clinics are on Mondays and Thursdays, so we're, we've got one tonight. Uh, also taking walk-ins for a limited time and appointments. And then we've got a Green Township vaccine clinic that's on Tuesdays. Those are 4.30 to 7.30, those evening uh, weekday clinics and the Saturday-based clinic will be from 8 to 2 this weekend. And we're going to modify and adjust these hours and it'll be on our website. Many, many, many pre, uh, primary care offices in Cincinnati have ordered a vaccine and will be administering very soon. I, they, they didn't start out right away. There's a lot of logistics to getting um, vaccination administration up and running in an office. So, uh, But I know that many of them have started and some will be starting. Um, our own pediatric primary care clinics here at Cincinnati Children's 
our PPC clinic, our Hopple Street clinic, and our other CHSN practices will be giving vaccine, and the the health departments are giving vaccine. So it, you know, I, if you're anxious to get a vaccine, um, we're glad that you're interested. Keep looking at the different websites. There's a Test and Protect website in Cincinnati that has all the locations listed for vaccination opportunities. And and you know what, we're extremely pleased that at Cincinnati Children's we're able to have the vaccine available now to be able to give to kids and that. But really what our long-term goal is, is to make sure every child is vaccinated. And that, and we also know that the medical home is really the place that we would like to get most kids vaccinated. And one of the other things that we know that's happened with COVID is that kids have missed their routine visits. They've missed uh, some of their routine vaccinations. So getting people back into their medical home um, so that they can catch up on their routine uh, uh appointments and that is really going to be critical. So we will continue to have these vaccines here, but my hope is very soon that we have them in the in the community. And so it makes it easier for the parents. Then you're familiar with the provider. Um, you're comfortable asking questions. Um, and I think it makes it better for everybody. And so the medical home being the primary care pediatrician or family medicine office where you go for checkups, right? Exactly. Perfect. And that's where you get your other vaccines. So it's it's this is we really want to normalize the the receipt of this vaccine. And all of those offices are doing fantastic things to get these shots in arms yes. as well. They are, they are. I will, I will add that um, at some of our clinics, you can also get vaccinated if you're an adult. And I think that's uh, been an interesting opportunity that some children are so eager to get vaccinated that they're actually leading their parents or their other adult caregivers in their lives to get vaccinated, which we like. Yeah, I've, I've heard a number of pediatricians actually say that is that the kid was brought into their office to get the vaccine and they said uh mom as long as we're here why don't you get vaccinated okay you know and that uh, and that so that the kill the kid kind of guilted the mom into mm -hmm. go getting the the vaccine they can be very persuasive uh. those kids um so just a couple of things that i want to double check how many weeks between first dose and second dose on the pediatric dose three weeks same, same as the adults for Pfizer. For Pfizer. 21 days, yeah. And we can go a little longer in that. Uh, it doesn't have to be exactly on the, on the button. We don't want to go shorter, but you can go longer. And I think you talked about it earlier, Dr. Frank, but I want to just uh, go back to one second. Um, this is a pediatric dose. This is a different dose of the vaccine than what we got as adults, yes? It's the same vaccine. It's the same formulation. It's just a lower dose of it. And the reason that we're using the lower dose is because the kids didn't need as much. Their immune system works so well that one third the dose that we gave to adults produced the exact same immune response. So we don't give any more than we need to. And it was great that we um, can use one third the dose, but it's the same dose, uh, same vaccine, the same formulation, the same protection. Um, it's just less because the kids don't need any more. Perfect. And if you dust off your crystal ball, do we have any thoughts on when kids under five might be eligible? Summer. Okay. He was pretty good. His, his crystal ball is pretty accurate because this was asked about this age group, and I think you were spot on. So mm -hmm. I think you said late fall, didn't mm -hmm. you? And here we are in November. It's a magical crystal ball. <laughs> um, I think I am out of questions for both of you. Um, Anything, any closing thoughts, anything you want to make sure we get in here before we call it a day? So I want to say that um, we have great respect and appreciation for 
um, the seriousness with which parents make decisions on behalf of their children's health. And uh, if you have questions, we want you to ask them. Ask them of somebody you trust, your pediatrician, your primary care provider, a friend, another mom. Um, we, I, I don't like that, that parents are, feel like they're stuck in the middle of information wars that are hard to interpret. Um, so I, I get that, it's, that some families feel very conflicted about making this decision, and you've just heard us say how safe and efficacious it is and how confident we are and how much we want you to do this. But more than anything, we want you to talk with somebody you trust and get the information that you need to make the decision uh, that you can live with in your heart and that keeps you safe and keeps your family safe. Couldn't say it any better. Neither could I. You guys are both wonderful. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for sharing this information with um, with our patient families. You've been listening to the Young and Healthy Podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you. This episode was recorded on November 4th, 2021. The content of the Young and Healthy Podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Our theme music was created by Stephen Grieco. This episode was produced by Symphony Pitts. Follow Cincinnati Children's on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.